This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome again to Extra with me, Geraldine Doog, here on RN. You'll meet Mallory O'Mara later, who's written about women and alcohol. If you want to know how a society treats its women, all you have to do is look to the bottom of the glass, she says, and she'll she'll mount a good argument for why that just might be the case. And also the Brazil, as one of our guests who we spoke to uh, said, you never get bored when you're a Brazilian trying to look at its politics. And uh, again, I think she'll persuade you of that as well. But first up, to potential changes to our ballooning superannuation sector, how it's governed and its essential purpose. It'll be a key talking point at next week's job summit. It's important because our financial system is undergoing profound changes with superannuation assets now rivaling the big four banks' assets in their sheer wealth. Super assets now exceed $3 trillion dollars. And KPMG predicts that by 2025, more than eight funds will each manage in excess of $125 billion. Staggering numbers. So the debate's now shifting into whether this homegrown sector could better serve the Australian economy. Could it help, for instance, with nation building, with some of those wicked problems like social housing or decarbonising? But does this possibility compromise the primary purpose of superannuation to maximise returns for people to use in their retirement? There is certainly a lot to discuss, and I'm pleased to welcome now Matthew Linden and Richard Holden to do so. Matthew's the Deputy Chief Executive of Industry Super Australia, and Richard Holden is Professor of Economics at UNSW. Hi, Geraldine. Um, Now, this new round of debate was directly sparked by uh, the uh, comments of um, Paul Keating, the former Prime Minister, uh, at uh, the superannuation roundtable on Monday. This is a society that can't house its own children. If super funds just think they can go and buy tech stocks in America and highways in Italy, they're going to run into trouble. Without being heavy-handed, there is a requirement of the funds to look at so-called Social opportunities. And then the Treasurer, current Treasurer Jim Chalmers, said this on RN Breakfast on Thursday. There are a number of examples now in our economy where the interests of fund members, workers, the interests of funds, the interests of the budget, the interests of the national economy are in many ways intertwined, if not inseparable. And if we can find ways to get good returns for Australian workers in their super accounts, from investing in areas where we obviously need investment, housing and uh, the energy transition are just two examples of that, then we can find these win-wins. And the critics of that position are deliberately misrepresenting my view. I'm not for one minute saying that we should trade off uh, returns for members. That is the purpose of the superannuation system, to deliver that decent retirement, which shouldn't be beyond us to find ways to do that Uh, while we invest in our national priorities. We've got a housing shortage. Uh, We've got the need to invest in cleaner and cheaper energy and how we transmit it and all the rest of it. Superannuation industry understands that. The banks understand that. I think the Australian people would support that. We just need to do the work to find the best way to do it. So, Matthew Linden, is this an invitation Big Super simply cannot decline? Well, look, I mean, it is very a very different attitude to that which was expressed by the previous government, so it's welcome in that respect. Jim Chalmers is right in saying that it is a very large pool of capital, domestic capital, which we have. Um, you know, I think one of only about five or six advanced economies where these long-term pension savings exceed GDP. It's an immense amount of capital. And so long as uh, the funds have front of mind the financial interests of members, uh, we know that they're going to invest as diversely as possible across the economy, um, both domestically here in Australia but also offshore shore as well, to try and achieve the best risk-adjusted returns for members. Yeah, but- and in the, co- in the course of doing so, they're likely to be investing uh, in areas where there is going to be economic spin-offs and even social benefits as well. 
Hmm. But you just, even that, you said uh, the financial interests of members, but it, it is a more specific, isn't it? The current is the primary purpose of the superannuation system, I know because my accountant tells me, is that you have to invest in your retirement. And obviously the clear purpose is to get the best the best yield for you. Now, um, are, are you in, is this in any way being watered down in your view? No, I don't believe so. Um, There is likely to be very soon some legislation that the government will bring forward around the objective of superannuation, um, which will make it crystal clear. Um, We're yet to see what the detail of that will look like, but we expect it will be very firmly focused on uh, the funds providing uh, uh, preserved benefits uh, to assist people in their retirement in combination with the age pension. Okay. Now, Richard Holden, you have written, um, you're a bit concerned about this, I think, uh, being blurry, and you think there's some real dangers here. What are they in your view? Well, I think the dangers are exactly what just came up, is whether there's a win-win or whether we will be asking superannuation funds to require their members to take a lower return, to give up some of their retirement savings, in order to do these nation-building projects, and that's the real concern. So it's it's easy to talk about win-wins, but, you know, do they really exist? I don't think for a moment that there isn't a housing affordability crisis in this country. I've written about it for years and proposed ways to deal with it. We've got a housing affordability crisis because we don't have sufficient land releases because we have strong zoning requirements because we have big subsidies on the demand side, such as negative gearing and so on. The answer to uh, the social housing problem is a government needs to spend more on social housing rather than require workers through their retirement savings to foot the bill for it. Is it possible that you could do both, particularly the decarbonising? I notice in the, because there's been some very interesting writing, um, that the decarbonising challenge where there's real money to be made, I think that's the, this is the issue here. People are not sure about either aged care or social housing. But in decarbonising, there's real money that could be made that you could imagine a better collaboration between this gigantic pool of capital and the banks um, and people. Well, I think that's right. If there's a good, I think it's about creating opportunities for this 3.3 or $3.4 trillion of superannuation savings to be put to work. So if there are really attractive opportunities in Australia, then I've no doubt that the super funds would like to invest here rather than looking for opportunities, as Paul Keating said, you know, on, on toll roads in Italy and so on. Uh, and I'm sure that's right. So I think the focus on creating these attractive investment opportunities is the right focus rather than, than talking about almost a a mandated or leaning on super funds to reallocate their resources. Well, what what are the possibilities of change? Because you've said that there are some interesting ideas emerging because we have got this huge pool of capital in Australia. Well, there are, there are some interesting ideas on the housing side. So there's almost no uh, what's known as uh, sort of build-to-rent sector in Australia, which is very common overseas. So people who build housing developments, usually units, apartments, with the idea of renting them out. And there are a variety of reasons to do with tax treatment and some sort of detailed things about that. But if you created a whole new asset class then all of a sudden that could become a really attractive thing for super funds to invest in. You mentioned decarbonisation opportunities. That's definitely another real potential. I think it's this idea of looking uh, as to where we can create attractive investment opportunities that are that are just good market-based investment opportunities for super funds to invest their members' retirement savings in. I've no doubt that if, it's a, if it comes down to a tiebreaker, between invest in Australia or invest overseas. Of course, super funds would like to invest in Australia. The tricky thing comes when you say, why don't you just take like 1% less to invest in aged care facilities in Australia rather than toll roads in Italy? And that's where that conflict comes up. And I'm just going to come back to that because I think this is that's what's crucial about this. But for instance, I noticed Barry Harrop, who's from Thrive Construct Australia Proprietary Limited, wrote a piece, a very arresting piece, saying currently Australia's super funds are sending off to the US hundreds of millions of dollars annually for investment in their build to rent because of generous tax breaks 
that don't exist in Australia. And, you know, that was very blunt. So you're saying, are you, Richard, that that's up to the government to then uh, introduce those generous tax breaks and then let uh, the market establish an industry but don't actually ask super funds to do this for them. Is that essentially it? That's exactly right, which is don't ask super funds to force their members to take a below commercial rate return. If you've got a good idea, investing in social housing, invest, investing in build to rent, a whole lot of green energy opportunities, if the government is going to subsidise those things that make them commercially viable as well as socially productive, then sure, that's a win-win. But saying, look, we're not going to do the hard work as government of, of actually subsidising these things, of building in the social value into the economic return. We're just going to ask this pot of money over here that seems convenient to take a haircut and invest in it. I think that's where individuals lose out in their retirement savings and it's really, uh, it's, it's a shortcut from government and it's a shortcut that they can't really take. <laughs> the dog agrees, obviously. Um, yeah. uh, Matthew, what if you were up front to yeah. members and you said, mm-hmm. um, uh, look, would you like to take a 1% or 2% drop in order to mm. be part of this sort of solving mm. a systemic problem? Mm. It's, it's your dog, is it? <laughs> it is. Okay. To, to solve this systemic problem um, facing Australian workers. Yeah. Look, I don't think anyone's asking superannuation funds uh, to invest in things which are not commercial and which they'd earn below market rates for their members. And I don't think that that's what the government's uh, proposing here at all. Um, there are fiduciary duties uh, which trustees have um, to ensure that they act in the best interests of their members, and that includes the best financial interests. And there's uh, some explicit changes to the law which have occurred in the last year or so to that effect. Um, what, making however, it more, more onerous or less onerous, do you mean? Oh, well, to focus, if there was an, I don't think there was a need to within our part of the, the industry to focus on, you know, the best interests of members, but it's very explicit in the law now that trustees need to make decisions in the best financial interests this of members. This is all post-Hain, I take it. Yes, yeah, mm, it is. Mm. Um, but, uh, look, there, I think we do need to recognise that governments can't solve uh, all of the challenges which they have. Their uh, balance sheets are maxed out. Uh, and this means that there are uh, very likely constraints in respect to uh, their capacity to address these issues. And they, I think, as I have over very many years, look to what role the private sector potentially can play where there's uh, a potential alignment of interests. And uh, affordable housing is one aspect of that. There's a whole spectrum of investments when it comes to, uh, to housing. And it is true that uh, some funds have chosen to invest offshore. Uh, however, there is the opportunity potentially to do so domestically. Some of the funds uh, are already participating in, in build-to-rent build schemes here in Australia. With a decent uh, yield? Yes. Yeah, it's still it's still early days, but I think it's possible. I mean, for instance, I notice, I think, um, I don't think it was you, somebody said, look at the below average returns consistently in the aged care sector, for instance, which has been another one cited. The aged care sector is not making money, you know, that's another whole discussion. So why would you be encouraging um, superannuation funds to go into this, to solve this systemic problem? Well, I think that's a really good case in point. Look, I, I think sort of speaking as economists at a broad level, there's often a difference between the commercial return on an investment and the, the social return that, that can come on top of that. Um, you know, providing our kids with, with secondary education is something that has no commercial return or very little commercial return but has enormous social benefit. And, you know, we're not going to ask banks, private investors, superannuation funds to invest in that. That's the role of government to uh, pay for that. And that's what we pay our tax dollars for, to try and do something that is of social value. And, um, you know, when you get to these propositions where you say, well, look, the commercial return's a bit light to invest in, but we think it's socially valuable, it's really up for the government to plug that gap. So if social housing requires more dollars from government, and then the question is, where do the where do the investment dollars come from? Sure, they can come from super funds. Same with aged care, same with green energy. But it's not a shortcut for the government to say, 
we're not going but to they're not saying that. But they're not things. saying that, are they? They're just calling, they're saying, can we be clever? I think they're saying this anyway. Can we be clever and look at whether there is a win-win um, in trying to tackle some of these systemic problems, given that we've, which, and in tackling them, um, assist workers, particularly, say, key workers, by actually being clever around the use of this enormous pot of money, which we didn't think we'd have 10 years ago. I think that's exactly the concern. So you can read the Treasurer's comments, you know, in, in a couple of different ways and one can read Mr Keating's comments in a couple of different ways. You know, one version of them is to say it's just a tie-breaking thing and why don't you look to Australia instead of Italy if it's the same thing. Another version is a little more nefarious, which says no-one will really notice if you get a 1% lower return by investing in aged care facilities in Australia in your super fund. So why don't we just sort of lean on them to do that? And, uh, you know, that would come, if that's what is being proposed or if that's what happens, that would come directly at the expense of the members who've been told they have to spend 10 to 12% of their current income, give it up and save for their own retirement and, you know, in many cases give up on the aged pension as a result of that and for better or worse, Mr Keating created a system, it's a system that I'm personally in favour of, that created private retirement savings accounts in Australia and it's the individual members' money. And that's why we have, as Matthew said, these fiduciary duties that say you've got to take care of the members' interests. And anything that impinges upon that I think is quite concerning. What? So I, I, Go on, Martin. Sorry, Gerald, I was just going to say, I mean, I, I, I understand there's a straw man there that's being built up, um, but, uh, you know, in reality, I, I don't think that that's going to be what's being asked uh, or what's being proposed uh, by the government in, in, uh, in opening up this debate. Uh, I think what they're thinking about is, you know, to the extent that there may be a, a need for private sector capital, uh, noting what I said before around government balance sheets being maxed out, um, there are things which governments can do to affect the risk return profile of that investment um, to ensure that it stacks up on a risk-adjusted basis so it's competitive with other types of investments. So, you know, governments can do that in a number of different ways. They can de-risk uh, a range of things associated with uh, affordable housing, for instance. Um, they can uh, they can provide uh, a top-up to the returns because we know in affordable housing, by definition, the the rents are below market rents. Um, so there is a challenge there in terms of being able to make it stack up on uh, on a on a risk-adjusted return basis, and that's potentially the role which governments can well, play. Well, that's a so subsidy, they, isn't it? Well, they've announced this um, housing affordability future fund, so they're putting $10 billion in that, and then the income stream they want to use uh, to help roll out 30,000 uh, affordable dwelling units. And, you know, maybe a smart way to think about that, uh, that income stream that's coming from the fund is to help shape that risk return profile for institutional investors who'd be prepared to invest for the long term. Get good returns for members. And I think we do need to recognise, I'd probably say that the funds have had some, would be underexposed thinking about um, the investment universe which is available to them. You know, there's uh, $3.5 trillion in super, but there's $10 trillion in residential housing stock and the fund's exposure is uh, relatively limited Low. to date. And they've got much more significant investments in commercial property, for instance, and we've seen through COVID that, you know, there are some risks there uh, which the funds will be thinking about. Look, you know, as we continue to diversify our portfolios, um, there's good reasons why they want to have exposure in this space. Um, I mean, there's going to, it, it's interesting what you're alluding to there. Uh, you obviously feel that uh, there would there are opportunities that the super funds would like to have um, made available to them, if I'm hearing you correctly, but you need to do it with a bit of almost governor, government as lender of last resort. Is, is, that, is that what I'm hearing sort of thing? Uh, well, look, I mean, this is the case... Um, this is the case with uh, it's it's been used quite uh, quite often in the infrastructure space. So we think about um, uh, public transport infrastructure. So in Melbourne um, is uh, Southern Cross Station. Um, it uh, it uh, is a project whereby uh, 
the industry funds came together through IFM investors to provide the capital to construct Southern Cross Station and uh, and operate it. Uh, there's a lease and there's an availability payment because it was recognised that the commercial tenancies, for instance, in that precinct wouldn't be sufficient to uh, be able to make the return on capital. The government provides an availability payment to top up those returns to ensure that that investors are fairly compensated. Um, so that's that's an example where the, 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 the government has come and provided a mechanism uh, to uh, attract, uh, in, you know, long-term institutional investment. We use it in innovation. So there's a medical research commercialisation fund which has well, been the established. CEFC does something like this too. Yeah, where, where you know, effectively uh, institutional investors in effect co-invest alongside uh, alongside the government in that fund and the government chooses to take a smaller portion of the returns generated from all the terrific ideas which are being generated in the medical research space, noting that there's benefits which governments obtain through those uh, through those uh, those medical So they pass up some of the capital gain, in other words. In order- Correct. Okay, right. Yep. What do you think about that, Richard Holden, as a way of thinking? I think that's exactly the right way of thinking, which is, you know, it's a good example of the government providing a top-up in terms of extra returns or reduced risk that turns something that's commercially not quite viable but socially productive into something that's both socially productive and commercially viable. just requires that top-up. That top-up can come in a number of different ways, uh, you know, subsidising the social housing, de-risking assets, the availability fees can come in a number of different ways and depends on the asset in in question. But it's that step that's crucial and trying to shortcut that and just strong-arm super funds into investing into something that doesn't have a commercial return is, I think, the concern. Now, maybe it is, as Matthew said, it's just a straw person and, you know, that's not what's being proposed, then that's great. But I think we just need to be careful that government's not taking that shortcut in providing something that is actually in the members' interest to invest in. I think this is a debate that's going to go on. A very interesting gentleman. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Matthew Linden and Richard Holden. Thanks, Thanks very much. And Matthew is uh, Deputy Chief Executive of Industry Super Australia, Richard Holden, a Professor of Economics at uh, UNSW. And I must say, this has certainly got you in. We've got an extraordinary number of texts. I'm just going to read a couple now. Um, and they do span um, the, the range of thought. Um, one text Super working for the community happens in Europe. My teacher friend has lived in her Amsterdam apartment for more than 30 years. Owned by a super fund, it provides income for the fund and affordable housing, and I think Australians would support this. We've also had a text from Jared Noonan, who's an ex-Financial Review editor, former chair of Media Super. Uh, The fact that industry funds already invest in infrastructure came about more than 20 years ago and it was seen as radical then as it was unclear what returns we could expect. So we created IFM, Industry Funds Management, and it turned out to be a winner. We, the boards of funds, can do so again. Um, and one other uh, uh, per, uh, sort of this is an example of of one woman who just basically said, um, "My uh, hands off my super. I've done the saving. Don't touch it." Now there's a there's a range, but very interesting and thoughtful responses. Um, Stephen Fenley, this superannuation thing is not complicated. Any prudent investment portfolio will have a mix of assets with varying yields. Long term investments, say in affordable housing, can have modest yet resilient yields that remain stable throughout the economic cycle. It's why pension funds invest in infrastructure and utilities with steady yields, while also investing in listed companies which are susceptible to the economic ups and downs. Super funds can invest in socially beneficial assets while still delivering acceptable returns to their members. So, thank you very much. If I have time, I'll I'll have some more. Um, but that is, as I said, I think that's a debate that will go on. Well, coming up next, why Brazil is waiting very expectantly for the results from their next election.
Yes, in just under 40 days, Brazilians will head to the polls for a crucial national election. And the alarming question many people are asking is, will President Jair Bolsonaro accept the results? He's well behind in the polls, and for months he's attacked Brazil's electronic voting machines as rife with fraud, despite virtually no evidence, and Brazil's election officials as aligned against him. He's told his tens of millions of supporters that, quotes, if need be, we will go to war, he said in a recent speech, and there's obvious inspiration from elsewhere. The candidate leading in the polls is Brazil's former left-wing president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, Lula da Silva. And should he win, his supporters hope he can turn round Brazil's declining fortunes. Deborah Barros Leal Farias is a Brazilian-born and educated senior lecturer in politics and international relations, now resident in Australia. And she joins us now. Hi, Deborah. Hi, and, and so happy to, to be here, to be able to talk a little bit about what's going on in Brazil. Well, is Brazilian democracy at risk here, as some do suggest in pretty uh, strong terms? Well, that is a very valid question. I mean, that's something that I've been, even though I've been living in Australia for four years now, I'm still really, really in touch with a large community of um, political scientists and academics in Brazil. And this is a daily question that we all have because for the first time since the country re-democratized, which was in the mid-80s, we have a president that's really openly talking about preemptively not accepting the results of an election. And he keeps wavering. He Sometimes he doubles down um, and says, we will not accept. And other times he steps back. He just gave a, a, a big interview in one of Brazil's leading TV channels. And when asked, he said he would accept if the election is deemed fair. It, it drinks very much on the same, let's say, water fountain mm. um, of <laughs> of Donald Trump. Although I will say the interesting thing about um, Bolsonaro is that he was already talking about fraud, electoral fraud, before he was elected to the presidency. So it's a very strange situation where someone who was elected um, is still claiming that it was fraud. In his mind, he says he should have won in the very first round with over 50% of the votes. I think he got 46. And he said that it was fraud. And he keeps saying that he has proof. Yet almost, you know, four years later, he still hasn't produced um, any concrete evidence of any sort of actual proof that, you know, mm. something wrong actually happened. So what's your level of concern about this? You say it's a sort of a daily um, concern, but how much? Well, here is the issue. So this is my personal opinion. From my, what I take from it, I think it's unlikely, but I don't think it's impossible. So I'm in that point where I don't think that in order to, to have, let's say, a successful coup or anything on those, um, you know, lines, it's not just about having the president talking to his supporters. You would need to have a broader institutional and societal, let's say, acceptance. And that's where a lot of the gray area is. What is the military forces? What is it that they would actually do? Um, since they can't publicly state their opinion, it, it's not really clear. And I have colleagues, academics who really work with democracy and armed forces in Brazil. And even they are like, well, it's hard to tell because the ones that are very outspoken and tend to be very much pro-Bolsonaro, they're usually retired. And so, and they are in the government because they are pro-Bolsonaro. So it's not really clear as if the armed forces would actually support or even have some sort of fracture um, in the sense of what is going on. But Bolsonaro right now, I think there is, and, and this is me being an optimist, I think it's more about inflaming his base and really grabbing the attention and say, you know, oh, this is what we will do. But there is fear. There's genuine concern over, you know, what happens if he keeps saying this. And then some of his more radical supporters decide mm. to do a January 6th. If the polls are reliable uh, and support for Bolsonaro has declined massively, what's shifted yeah. among Brazilians to cause this? Um, a couple of things. So I'd, I'd say with the sort of basics, it's, you know, follow the money. 
um, or the lack thereof. So nowadays, Brazil's numbers when it comes to, for example, hunger, the, the numbers of people who actually are, are hungry on a daily basis now are the highest they've been, I think, since the 1980s. The number of unemployment is very, very bad. Inflation is really up. And not only with this sort of economic issues that are really affecting, especially poor, uh, the, the people, let's say, the, the poorest uh, groups in Brazil. And that's his base uh, anyway, isn't it? Oh, well, not really, not necessarily. This was, the past election was quite confusing because basically you had um, an option between a workers' party that was really, many people were tired of having, you know, 14 years of, 13 years of the same party in government. There had been all the scandals. There had been, you know, an impeachment. So, and I mean, last election, presidential election, Lula ended up in jail, right, during the time of the election. It was a really, really big mess. And Bolsonaro kind of came like Trump, someone claiming that they were, you know, outside of the establishment, saying, you know, I'm going to do things differently and I'm going to put order in this chaos and I'm going to fight corruption and sort of he had a lot of people, I think, that even though they didn't really like him, they were willing to give a shot for something different. This time it's different because he's the incumbent. So he needs to convince people that, hey, you're going to have four more years of me and that would be good. And that's one of the big problems that he has right now, because most people are like, I don't want four more years of this. And COVID also hit Brazil very hard. I mean, Bolsonaro, he he made very light, um, kind of mocking people who were um, without breath. Over almost 700,000 Brazilians died from, from COVID. He was recommending people not get vaccinated, recommending people to not wear masks. So there's a lot of, I think, um, people hurting because of family members and friends that they lost from COVID to a president who really doesn't seem to care much. And have they shifted fundamentally in their attitudes to him, would you say then? Uh, and I just wonder whether it's a, just deep attitudes to democracy or what? I think there's a little bit of a little bit of everything. So Bolsonaro, if you think of, of Trump as a good example, there's going to be people who will always like him. There's going to be people who are going to follow him no matter what. So Bolsonaro does have that. But not everybody who voted him for him last election was in this ballpark. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that he did not deliver on what he was claiming, you know, that he would do to transform. And not only that, but actually made things worse because now Brazilians are comparing these last, you know, three and a half years, he started his tenure in January 1st, 2019. So people are comparing three and a half years of him, which have not been good, versus eight years during uh, Lula's presidency, mm. where Brazil's number were were significantly better in a social economic um, situation. You know, it's one thing to say, I'm new, trust me, I'm going to provide something different. It's very different this time, which is, you know me, you've seen what I do. Do you want me to do more of it? <laughs> and I just think the fact that a lot of people are like, no, it's we don't want more of you. Like, this has not worked. Given that you mentioned Lula, tell us a little bit more about him. What would make most Brazilians want to see him back in office? So Lula is a very polarizing figure in um, Brazilian politics in the sense, uh, in the same sense of Bolsonaro, those who love him, love him. Those who hate him, hate him. So there's very much this almost um, a devil or saint characteristic that people take into these two figures. But Lula, he is very charismatic and um, he's been in Brazilian politics for a very long time. He's always been to the left of um, the political stream. There are some people who really just don't like him. Other people will say, well, yeah, he's he's really good at talking, but he's actually, you know, what he did was he really just pandered to the poor people in Brazil to stay in power, gave them money, gave them dreams and gave them really nice talk, but he didn't deliver on really changing the fundamentals of um, the country. And Lula also, what he has is uh, because his party 
who was in, you know, leading in Brazil for about 13, 14 years, uh, they were so involved in all of these corruption scandals. Well, he went to prison over this, didn't he? Yes, he did. And then he was exonerated. So it's it's one of those things where if you like Lula, you say, no, he was exonerated because he was innocent. They just didn't have the proof to, you know, go on with it. If you don't like Lula, you'll say the system is flawed. How can a man like him get out of prison given everything that happened under him? Mm-hmm. He just gave an interview to this, this big Brazilian network, and so he talked about corruption. So what he's saying is that one of the issues that happens when you have um, corruption is that if you have a good government, if you have a transparent government, you will allow corruption investigations to take place. And because of his government's willingness to be transparent, the moment that you allow the institutions to look for corruption, they're more likely to find corruption <laughs> than if you if you say, I will not allow any sort of investigations. Then you'll say, well, there's no corruption, right? He's, he's kind of going into this idea, which is a, which is a real paradox, mm-hmm. um, that the more you're open about let's look for corruption, the more you're going to find it. I'm going to ask you one final question because I know listeners yes, will course. say, well, what about the fate of the Amazon um, uh, under yes. which man? You know, it's the deforestation yes. as many people are concerned yes. and the incredible growth of yes. pastures. What would your answer be? Well, whether one likes Lula or not, he will be a lot better when it comes to managing the Amazon just because of his track record. Brazil's improvements in terms of um, climate in terms of deforestation, in, in a range of different things. During his presidency, Brazil really, I think, stood proud to say that we had, you know, the country had really changed into a good direction. Brazil was really one of the leaders in terms of saying, no, we are doing this and we are doing the, the right thing. With Bolsonaro, I mean, he has basically emptied, like hollowed out almost all policies, almost all institutions related to the Amazon. He has a very old school understanding of development. Development is basically make money off of what nature gives you. Um, And anyone that's an outsider that complains, he says that they are communists, that they Mm -hmm. are leftists. Communist is actually a word that gets used a lot. He really made it into a thing where it's not about a debate of, well, it's up to Brazil to decide and this is what we're going to do is to say, no, anything that comes from the outside, they are, you know, they, they, they don't want the best for the Amazon. They just don't want Brazil to grow or this is a communist takeover. There's a lot of conspiracy theories. Right. Unfortunately, I don't see things getting any better when it comes to the Amazon, aside from something like, you know, big pressure, let's say Brazil's trying to get into the OECD. So unless the OECD director, who's an Australian, you know, if they go and say, okay, Brazil's not getting in, if these numbers are in this way, that might be something that might prompt him to change. Mm. But definitely environment for me, for him is not seen as a legitimate point of, of, yes. Okay. Well, that's a very good uh, background uh, for us. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I thank you. Deborah Barros Leal Farias from the University of New South Wales, where she lectures in politics and international relations. I think there are five or six candidates all up, uh, and that um, first round election uh, begins in October. Well, now for a delightful change of pace. Uh, So uh, even though it's early in the day, we're going to explore the history of women and alcohol. That's coming up now. If you're heading out tonight, you might enjoy a strawberry daiquiri, a Cosmo, a pina colada, a Negroni with a cocktail umbrella, uh, or perhaps you choose to avoid these concoctions that are unfairly considered, often, girly drinks. Well, girly drinks are just fine in the eyes of our last guest today, who's explored the history of women and alcohol, their roles in the making, serving, consumption and marketing of alcohol, and what a story she tells. Yes, the relatively recent wave of female brewers and winemakers 
have some astonishing predecessors, as you'll hear. Mallory O'Mara is the author of Girly Drinks, A World History of Women and Alcohol. Welcome to Saturday Extra. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. Look, it's a very large topic and it's very fresh. You really surprised me on a number of uh, pages. What inspired you to tackle it? Well, I, whenever I get into anything, I, I'm a bit of a nerd and I always want to read about it. And I had, in my early 20s, got into drinking craft cocktails and I thought, well, this is really neat. This is really fun and I want to learn about the history of these drinks. And I started reading books about them and I noticed that there was no women's history in any of them. And it wasn't until I read my fourth or fifth one and there was one sentence in one paragraph about how during American Prohibition, uh, women had were welcomed into drinking spaces for the first time in America's history. And I thought, oh, my God, hold the phone, please. That's what I want to know about. There, there had to be history there. I just absolutely refused to believe that women were not involved in, in the history of wine and beer and whiskey and distilling and bars. I just said no. <laughs> well, how right you were. And you start your book with what's known about alcohol and women in Mesopotamia. But I'm going to hop along massively in time to the Prohibition era of the 1920s in the US. Now, many of us associate that era with the temperance movement. That's what's been examined when women campaigned against drinking and the ills that booze caused society. You decided to look at the flip side of prohibition. What happened when the ban was introduced? Well, so many people associate that time period with women being against alcohol, but in reality, it was there were much more women on the other side of things, you know, women distilling, women smuggling, and what happened when prohibition happened is that, you know, up until that point, women were not welcome in public drinking spaces. So women drank in private in the home, and then all of a sudden, when alcohol was illegal, bars were shut down, saloons were shut down, everyone had to go in secret places, in private places places where women had already been drinking. So for the first time in America's history, women were welcome in drinking spaces because the private drinking spaces were all there were. So this is the the rise of the speakeasy. And can you develop that for us, please? Because it, it rolls off the tongue, but I think a lot of us don't quite understand what they were. Really, they were sort of secret private drinking spaces because, again, alcohol was illegal. So they were rooms underneath restaurants, underneath hotels, in the back rooms of places that were accessible by password or by code. And bootleg alcohol was served there. And it's funny, when you look in the movies, a lot of times speakeasies are rough-looking places. But in reality, because alcohol was illegal, the only people who could afford it were very rich people. So speakeasies were most of the time very, very high class places. The the class division in America was very much on display then, was it? Oh, absolutely. It always is. <laughs> well, you know, because it was scarce and the, the supply absolutely could not meet the demand. I mean, you could pay almost $500 of today's dollars for a, a bottle of champagne. Goodness. And so you say that, um, in fact, drinking among women increased during Prohibition. Yes. I mean, drinking among almost everybody increased, which is another funny part of, of America's great failed experiment. But it was because women, uh, things were changing. That was around the time period uh, where the flapper was introduced. Women were uh, more in the workspace. They were getting more independence. And Prohibition was the time where there was a rise in a brand new hobby for American women, which was dating. Uh, up until that point, women were courted, and it was much more formal process. And now women were accepted into these public drinking spaces where dates were happening, and it, it just completely changed uh, American female social life. How interesting. And this is from about, what, 1927 onwards sort of thing? Twenty Is, is, it, is that about yeah. right? Yep. Uh, yeah. And, so mid-20s to, to, to through the 1930s. Um, what if a woman couldn't afford to go out during this time? Well, she made drinks at home just like they do uh, during today. And uh, the cool thing about it is that's really where the uh, cocktails had sprang up. I mean, nobody knew more about making cocktails in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, even I would even say 50s as well than uh, American housewives. 
So they were really practiced in not only making the alcohol, but, you know, using the ingredients that were in their kitchens, cordials, liqueurs, they were, those were all things that women made. A lot of women passed down recipe books of how to make beers and wines and liqueurs to their daughters. You know, a, a lot of the ingredients that were being, you know, mixed up in fancy bars and hotels during that time period were started as uh, things that people found out about at home. So is that really how cocktails emerged the world over? You know, a cordial or something sweet being mixed with a strong liquor that might make your, your eyes water. Is that really the source of it? Well, cocktails actually had been invented a little bit uh, a few decades before that, but really they start, started getting very popular in the uh, early 1900s. They were America's first sort of uh, cultural export that the, the, that got the world's attention. Um, that people were really really excited about cocktails. They were called American drinks for a long time, uh, and they just sort of sprang up because people were experimenting. But during the prohibition, as you said, they became quite important because that was when nobody wanted to drink a straight whiskey during prohibition because there was a high chance that it was made in a bucket or a bathtub somewhere. (laughs) And by the way, we're talking, I presume, largely white women at home and in the speakeasies. Were they mixed? Were they segregated? Well, there are actually lots of black speakeasies as well. There are some of the most famous black performers were speakeasy performers, uh, but the speakeasies generally were segregated. There were some that welcomed the mixing of races, but most of them were either black uh, speakeasies or white speakeasies. Uh, But there were lots of black women and women uh, of other races who who made cocktails at home as well. Um, It wasn't just something for white women. In your book, there's a photo of a woman during Prohibition whose dress has a lot of secret pockets for bottles of alcohol, which would then be hidden under a coat. I mean, it was quite ingenious to see, actually. Oh, it's so funny because women actually were more successful at smuggling during Prohibition and smuggled more alcohol than men did because in the early days of it, all the enforcement agents for Prohibition in America were men. So they weren't, in a lot of states, they weren't even allowed to search women because of, you know, yeah. propriety. Nobody wanted to touch women. So the women took advantage of it and filled up their skirts and uh, prams and <laughs> boots and all kinds of things. Eventually, people caught on and started hiring female enforcement agents. But even then, um, it was uh, women who were by far the more uh, successful and um, prolific smugglers. <laughs> Right. Uh, Look, uh, if you've just joined us, Mallory O'Mara is our guest. She's the author of Girly Drinks, A World History of Women and Alcohol. And you focus in each chapter on particular women who do illustrate aspects of the story you're telling. Could you tell us about Gertrude Lithgow, who was a successful bootlegger during during Prohibition? Oh, absolutely. She's one of my favorites. Uh, there's a very common phrase, at least in America here, uh, called the real McCoy. You know, if you're getting the real McCoy, yeah. you're getting something that's genuine, that's real. Uh, and the reason why that phrase exists is because there was a very famous smuggler named Bill McCoy, and he was very notorious. But, and the thing about him is that people always knew that the whiskey and the gin and all the alcohol that he was selling you was real. And the reason he got that reputation is because of Gertrude. She was quite literally the most successful and famous international bootlegger in the world. She operated out of the Bahamas and she smuggled in real scotch, real whiskey, real bourbon. And she worked with Bill all the time. She would uh, load up one of her speed boats in the Bahamas with her pistol on her hip and then uh, drive the boat up to Florida and hand it off to Bill. And it would be sold throughout the U.S. And she, uh, she worked for a number of years and was extremely successful. But she, she was, was caught. finally caught, though. Yes, it's frustrating because part of the reason why she was caught is because she was a woman. The press was so enamored with this sort of romantic notion of this gun-toting smuggler, but they weren't really interested in her smuggling. They were more interested in like, oh, do you have a boyfriend? Oh, what kind of guys do you like? And there were constantly uh, paparazzi following her around. So it made it her job very difficult to sneak. And eventually they caught up with her and she uh, had to had to get apprehended by the law. Oh, and she did, then she really turned what we'd say Queen's evidence. She, t- she then collaborated with the authorities and uh, 
gave all sorts of information about people with whom she worked. Um, and actually, she spent the rest of her life enjoying the fortune she'd amassed, as you say, but keeping very much to herself. Oh, yeah, what a dream. She just lived in fancy hotels for the rest of her life, mm. uh, enjoying her fortune. She really, uh, she got away with it. I was also quite taken with a woman called Bessie Williamson. Um, she was a pioneering oh. Scot who turned America onto single malt scotch. Yes. Uh, it's interesting because nowadays scotch, especially single malt scotch, is thought of as the most masculine drink that you can have. Uh, but really, it was Bessie Williamson who was, uh, you know, a cozy, sweater-wearing, cat's eye glasses-wearing woman who she was the first and so far only female general manager and owner of the Lafroy Distillery in Scotland. And she was so successful and so enthusiastic about her scotch that the Scotch Whiskey Association sent her over to America because in the 1960s, the America was still trying to get back on, you know, its legs underneath it when it came to the liquor trade. And, you know, the prohibition had ended in 1933, but people were still trying to figure out how to sell liquor to America. And back then, blended scotches were all the rage. Nobody wanted to drink a single malt scotch, which is funny because today they're such a coveted thing, but back then nobody wanted them. And she was convinced that with the right uh, coaxing, people could be convinced to do so. So they sent her on this big tour of America through different liquor stores and bars, and she talked to all these bar owners and liquor store owners about how if you offered it to customers and told them about it and, uh, you know, gave them a chance to get a taste for it, single malt scotches would really be the thing. And she was right. She was one of the most instrumental people in getting that changed. And now today, again, single malt scotches remain all the rage, the most coveted type of scotch. And it was all, be- it wasn't because of a man with a beard or, or someone who looked like Nick Offerman. It was, it was uh, Bessie. Bessie Williamson. Well, yeah. Look, I must ask you about abuse of alcohol. I know that you, you know, you didn't want to focus on this. You want to, because you say there's so much in that, but there must have been consequences uh, for all of this drinking. Um, do you bother to look at that? Oh, absolutely. And I think that's one of the saddest things about the fact that women only were allowed to drink in private. When people are drinking in private, it's harder to regulate what you're drinking. And because there was such a bias against women drinking, that a lot of women who had problems with alcohol were reluctant to go to a doctor to get help because no one, it, no one wanted it to you know, get out that a woman had been drinking. So a lot of women had, uh, had problems that went undiagnosed or, or unhelped during those early, uh, early years of the 1900s and late 1800s. And it's, uh, it was a really sad thing. Look, thank you so much indeed. Thank you so much for having me. Natalie O'Mara. And it is a clever book she's written, Girly Drinks, A World History of Women and Alcohol. It's published by Hearst. Now, just a couple of promos before I go. The Venezuelan male soprano, Samuel Marino, is sensationally coming to Australia with his totally unique voice, I think it's fair to say. Um, He has a run of concerts uh, uh, coming in Australia with the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra. And he's going to be on the music show. And I really do think think you would love. I don't know whether you've heard his voice, but I'll tell you what, it's quite remarkable and the repertoire he's helped revitalise. And on rear vision, they're looking at microchips. And as they're saying, if, if they are the new oil, Taiwan is the new Saudi Arabia. It produces 90% of the world's most sophisticated microchips that power everything from our smartphone and laptops to military equipment, electric cars and rockets that go to Mars. But we also know it's in the uh, bit of the eye of the storm. So, look, two things to keep your eye out for on Radio National. And let's say farewell today with Nina Simone, the great Nina, performing Gin House Blues, a song made popular by Bessie Smith during Prohibition. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Duke. Thank you for your company today. And I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye-bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.